across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour, food and drink in and around Cambridge, presented by Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and myself, Matt Bentman. On today's programme, we will be checking out one of Cambridge's newest restaurants, going for gold with Cambridge Sustainable Food, talking succulent juicy burgers made by the team at Gorilla and Lamb, investigating heritage grains and going wild food foraging in the heart of the city. All this and plenty of local food news and food jobs in our area. So, let's begin. Well, if you spent any time at all in the Market Square in Cambridge, you will have noticed that the old Pasquale building is being done up, and being done up very thoroughly. It will open soon as an eating place called Market House, and the man in charge is Bill Brogan, who you may remember was catering manager at St John's College. Yes, he did a couple of really interesting interviews with you, Sue, didn't he, a while ago. I went to talk to Bill on Tuesday, and he showed me round what is a huge building, five storeys, and it goes back a long way too. It has huge potential as an eating place, but what's it going to be like, and how is that space going to be used? I asked Bill all this when I visited. Bill, I was wondering about Market House and what it's going to be. I mean, is it, you know, a cafe, a restaurant, a bar? Will there be outside uh, dining like the Wasman Pasquale's owned this place? Okay, well, well, just to answer those questions, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, there's going to be all those, but if I can just explain, we will have some outside seating. We've got permission for 18 seats outside, so we will do outside dining but if I talk about the rooms we ha- we do have a, a meeting room with a meeting space so if people want to hire a meeting room uh, we've got then got two floors which we're going to have as a restaurant which we're going to call fine eating that's open uh, lunch and dinner uh, seven days a week apart from Sunday night Sunday night the the whole venue will be closed and then we've got what we call our casual dining and really that will be for outside and it will be for down in the basement during the day and that's what we call all, all day dining it really is from 11 o'clock to to, to, to five o'clock but we will also be doing a breakfast from nine o'clock so breakfast is from nine to 11 and then casual all day dining from 11 till five where they will be eating that is outside and down in the basement down in the basement from 6pm it will convert into a wine bar so it will be a wine bar a cocktail bar in the evening we do have a kiosk uh, at the entrance to market house as you come in and that will be open from 8am so people passing can get some croissants very nice croissants uh, coffee uh, and, and products like that or they can come and buy coffee and, and sit inside and we're going to have some special cakes for, for later in the, in the day. We also do have a food lab 
where we'll do research and development of our dishes and we'll also do presentations and events in there and also that that can be hired out to different companies as well to do their own research and development in in, in food right food. well yeah. the food research sounds extremely interesting yeah. when you were at uh, when you were a catering manager at john's you put on some special events there didn't you yeah. for, for for students and presumably uh, fellows well there are several that really struck me i mean for you had a smoked fish tasting you've yeah. had wine tastings cheese tasting you had a a, a, a menu which included insects. So are you yeah. going to be doing anything special like that here, do you think? Yes, yes, we, we, we are going to be doing events like that. I mean, already lined up for November, we've got a Paul Roger dinner with the head of uh, Paul Roger, UK. Uh, and uh, I, I've had an email from the head of Paul Roger in France uh, supporting the event. We've got an event in October, we're just agreeing the date, a Chablis and oyster tasting with Bill Pinney from Pinney's of Orford. Uh, we've also got a cheese tasting with the Cambridge Cheese Shop and we're looking at doing other events. And like you said, I did do an insect event and we'll probably look to redo that again because I think that's going to come even more to the fore, uh, especially with food prices and everything else. We'll have to look for other items to consume. Okay, I was going to ask you about things like, I mean, things like coffee. Presumably, you found a roastery. Is it one you've yeah. used before? No, I've, I've I've not used them before, but they are coffee based. It is Brew Project, and they've got their roastery in Ely. And uh, we did the, a tasting last week with the, with the staff, and they thought the tasting was fantastic and is is very very good coffee so yeah and it's uh, nice to use somebody local as well it, it is and he's really switched on into coffee breeze and coffee so it, it is local and that's also the same with the tea we, we are using a company called Jai Tea which are based just outside Cambridge uh, they're coming in to do some training ne- next Monday with the staff and they buy from individual states uh, around the world and, and it's top of the range tea we will be selling the coffee and also the tea in our little retail space. We've got a little retail space so people can buy that, they can buy the beans or, the, or they can buy, uh, can buy the tea as well. We will be selling some very market items. Well, tell me about your wines because I know again at John's you, you uh, sort of almost pioneered the, the, um, the use of, of, of wines from places like China, Armenia, Japanese white for example. Yep. Um, is, is your wine offer going to be pretty broad? Yes, it, it is. It's uh, it's quite a big wine list for for Cambridge. It's uh, nearly ninety bins, uh, and it does feature again Paul Roger, Chambler, but uh, we have got diverse wines from China, uh, from Japan, and from around the world. We've also concentrated a lot on organic wine, biodynamic wines, and we've got a sake wine list. We've got a great cocktail wine list. And also we're dealing with craft breweries up and down the, the country and we're going to be changing them all, all the time. Some of those are, ca- are Cambridge based and local, uh, but we'll take beers from Northumberland, from Leeds, from Devon, from South Wales, from wherever and keep changing them. But it is ba- going to be really based on small craft breweries, which is going to be quite unique. I haven't really asked you about what sort of items will be on the restaurant menu. Yeah, the menu is kind of British what what whatever British is because it's got so many influences but it's with a touch of uh, Mediterranean influence and it has got a touch of Asian influence because quite a bit of the art within the area will, will be Asian art 
the menu will focus quite a bit on fish and also it will focus a bit on plant-based products we will have meat on there but it's not a, a meat laden menu we've kind of tried to go away from that yes we've got a steak on there the steak is absolutely a fantastic piece of meat but we haven't got steak pork uh, chicken and everything else on there is definitely leaning towards fish sustainable fish and plant-based products and that's both on the casual dining and also on the main fine eating menus and as far as events go any sort of guest chefs and anything like that yes we're landing some guest chef evenings and we'll be doing that and uh, will, will they be names we all know do you think y- yes i think you yeah. you know them uh, and already the the team are aware of that and they're quite excited and looking to work alongside the these people uh, someone said that they'd like to sit down at the, the event themselves, but I'm afraid I think they'll have to be work, working the event. But yeah, so we're we're, we're doing a calendar of events, and uh, certainly the name is getting round of what we're doing here down down in London and also further afield. So yeah, there's going to be some collaboration with some of these, uh, shall we say, superstar chefs and people within the industry. So yeah, it's going to be an exciting yeah. place. This yeah. <laughs> And when, when are you opening? Hopefully we're going to open the restaurant round about the 10th of June. Uh, the, the wine bar will open probably about 10 days after, after that. We will open the restaurant and the, and the kiosk and then the casual dining and wine bar will, will follow probably, like I said, about 10 days afterwards. Yeah. So I'll finish it off. We've already got a lot... We, we, we've not taken any bookings as yet, but we've got over 500 in the pipeline that want to book at the moment. That's but tremendous. We're, we're not going to set those till we, till we know we're up and running and live and everything else. And uh, we've gone through the customer journey uh, with ourselves on our staff training and everything. Yeah, great. Well, mm. along with the other 500, I, I, yes. I look forward to eating with you. <laughs> yeah, we look forward to seeing you. <laughs> okay, thanks very yeah. much, Bill, and good luck. Well, Market House is a truly exciting addition to the food and drink scene in Cambridge. So, roll on June the 10th or thereabouts. And now details of free food available in and around Cambridge. The information comes from the Olio app, which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, Olio, spelt O-L-I-O. It's free to install on your smartphone or tablet. And using it, a person can give surplus food away and anyone can collect it. So... A quick look at Olio today shows that Nikki on Coldham's Lane has a stack of things from Tesco's to give away. Fresh croissants, chocolate twists, cinnamon swirls, pretzels, half a dozen wholemeal loaves, crumpets, naans, and plenty of fruit and veg too. And there's a few here, even though they've been claimed already, they're such generous freebies. I had to mention them here because this is what Olio is all about. So Dan near Cherry Hinton Park had lots of Tesco sandwiches. Again, nothing wrong with them. They were just close to expiry, that's all. Whilst Matt, near Mill Lane, had vast quantities of Pret-a-Manger baguettes, sandwiches and salads, all free to a good home. 
always plenty of good stuff on Olio, and it's worth keeping an eye on. And don't forget, there is another free app. It's called Too Good To Go. Now, this one features unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home, instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Time for some news now. And Finn Boys are doing a pop-up in Willingham on the 25th of June at Hidden by Pudini. It will be a 10-course tasting menu at £75 per head. To book, follow the link in Finn Boys' Instagram bio. And Finn Boys have a special night back home at Two Mill Road on the 6th of July. A five-course menu with Californian wines and Cambridge wine merchants Hal Wilson in attendance. To book for this one, head to the Finn Boys website. And congratulations to Pudini for reaching the finals of the Muddy Stiletto Awards for the best restaurant in Suffolk and Cambridgeshire. At the Flourish Farm in Hildersham on the 2nd of July, there will be a course about heritage grains with a walk to see them, a talk about them and a bake with them. Here's Helen Holmes, one of the presenters. So at the farm, me and Calixta Calendar are in partnership growing organic grains. Um, and the, the heritage grains are also the populations we grow are very tall, so they help shade out any weeds that are in the canopy of the wheat underneath. Um, so we can still kind of get a good crop from the uh, wheat and other grains that we grow of that. And what are they like in, in, in baking, Helen? Do they make much difference to, to flavour of bread, say? Or? As part of the event, um, we've got Helen Evans, who is baking at Floor in London, and she'll be available on the day to ask all sorts of questions about that. But I, d I did ask her in advance and she told me that basically you have to embrace the diversity of the flower that's coming through. So what, what we produce at Flourish is unique. So it's not something that is white powder in a bag off a shelf, which may be what certain bakeries are more used to, a very consistent product. We produce something that's very much a product of that season. And we, so the main sort of difference for the baking end is that you have to constantly keep, you know, keep yourself on your toes with this unique flower that's coming through that changes from season to season. But as, yeah, as Helen will be able to explain on the course, there's just so much you can do with that to kind of bring more life into your baking and tailor specific varieties of wheat, specific recipes. She makes a great, um, like a tart, which has got wheat in all different kinds of forms in it, sort of like boiled grains in the tart and obviously the crust. And we, we grow Maris Widgeon, which is a variety developed in Cambridge, you know, on Maris Lane um, in Trumpington. And that's a really kind of, the flavour profile for that is very malty and nutty and kind of sweet. So it's really nice in kind of sweet tart crusts and things that I've had in the past with sort of sweeter kind of stuff or like fruit tarts I've had with it in the past. You know, obviously not made by me, like made by my baker pals that are very skilled. So it's kind of like um, you can, there's more room to play and more room to use wheat as a specialist ingredient, you yeah. know, like you would treat maybe coffee or cocoa or, you know, local specialist vegetables. It's the turn of wheat to have on other grains, so we grow rye as well. Yeah, those of us who are interested in, in, uh, in food are very excited about this sort of thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> And will, will the flour be available for sale? Because, you know, you don't see heritage flower very yeah. often. Um, so last year was uh, me and Clix's first main crop uh, together. So we grew uh, yeah, just a couple of acres. And we have the deal with these heritage stuff is that you have to look after your own seed stock. So 
that we could because we had to save so much uh, for seeds. So now we've got more acres in the ground, so we have like six acres of different things. So we'll have much more to sell after this year's harvest. And that was Helen Holmes. The date again is 2nd of July, and on the 4th of July, the event will be repeated, specifically for professional chefs and bakers. More details and booking information are on the Flourish website. Yeah, I think I might go to that, you know. I think I will too. Right. Brilliant. <laughs> Some wine news now. At Cambridge Wine Merchants on the 11th of June, you can meet the winemaker Jonathan Hesford from Domaine Trelloir in Roussillon. This event will be hosted by Cambridge wine merchants Clive Pawley at his home in Willingham. There will be tastings and light food and nibbles. Places are very limited. To book, email kings at cambridgewine.com and include a contact number. The cost is £30. And another event from Cambridge Wine Merchants is a Provence punting party on the CAM. It's £90 for two people and includes an hour-long guided punting trip, a bottle of Provence rosé and a grazing board for two. To book, email bridge at cambridgewine.com and only 15 pairs of tickets are available. Now, the next two tastings at Amphora are Sparkling Wines on the 8th of June, that's £35 per head, and Pimonte and Noble Nebbiolo on the 15th of June at £30 per head. Cambridge's own winemaker, Gutter & Stars, has a new wine, the Good Mixer Blonde on Blonde blend, a blend of Ortega and Bacchus grapes, and the tasting notes say it has tropical fruit characters, a lush mouthfeel and a pleasing bite of acid on the finish. It's available now from the Gutter & Stars website. Meadows in Eltersley Avenue has a wine tasting on the 30th of June, 6.30 till 7.30. Book via the Meadows website. Food Park has a new pitch. It's on the biomedical campus. It's between Papworth Hospital and AstraZeneca and it runs from 12 till 2 on Fridays. Stir in Chesterton Road is starting Tuesday Toddler Arts on the 7th of June and this will take place every Tuesday from 9.30 till 10.30. Cambridge Community Kitchen, which operates from what used to be the Hotbine pub in Fair Street, needs delivery drivers. The kitchen tackles food poverty by offering free, hot, plant-based meals to those who need them every Tuesday, Thursday and Sunday. Details of delivery driver work can be found on the Cambridge Community Kitchen website, which is ccKitchen.uk. The Tivoli in Chesterton Road has reopened and has steak and honour producing the burgers. And there's a lot of work being done to the building which had suffered extensive fire damage and there are great views off the river from the terrace. Good news in Trumpington. The Thursday food vans are back in the Clay Farm Community Garden. And on Monday, the 20th of June, from 11 till 3, there's a Cambridge Bangladeshi Health Fair where you can get a free health check, speak to GPs and nurses and learn how to manage diabetes. There's a free halal and vegetarian buffet as well. It's at the Meadows Community Centre in St Catherine's Road, Arbury. And looking just a little ahead, Oyster Lab is at the Lab Cocktail Bar in Regent Street on the 1st of July. Now, summer is here and the beer gardens are filling up. At the Cambridge Blue in Gwider Street, the Gorilla and Lamb team serve an interesting range of burgers to go with your pint. Matt had a chat in the beer garden with the manager, Souk, and chefs Nico and Lex about their smash patties or smash burgers. Here's Lex. Okay, so a smash burger, we take our meat and it's a specific grind of a couple of different cuts of beef. Those get balled up to our desired weight and then they go on a griddle that's about 300 degrees. And then you take a cast iron weight 
and you smash it until it's thin as you can make it while it still holds together. And then immediately you get all this browning and caramelization and then quick flip, add the cheese on and it's done. So it's all just like very quick and very, very delicious. Yeah, I mean, that's a smash burger. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, the patties themselves, because they're smashed really thin, mm. all you get is just full-on flavor. Again, some places where we've tried the burgers, the, the patties are almost an inch thick, just lacks the flavor, whereas these light, thin, crispy, full-of-flavor patties really just pack a punch full of flavor, but without the heaviness in the stomach. So it's fair to say that the thicker the patty doesn't necessarily mean the better the burger. 100%. No, you need to come and try this. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely true. (laughs) I think people for too long have been trying to make burgers taller and taller and taller. And we're saying, like, don't do that. Make them wider. It's okay. (laughs) Make the burger wider. It doesn't need to be eight feet tall. You can't eat that thing anyway. And these smash burgers, it's just all flavor, man. It's so good. I wanted to pick a few items from their menu, quite distinctive things that Lex could Lex lyrical about. He favours old world techniques, starting with jungle pickles. I turned myself into a pickle! So jungle pickles, we came up with the name ourselves, but my recipe is actually based on a Depression era America. During the Depression in America, they came up with this pickle recipe and they called them bread and butter pickles. The reason they gave them that name is because people would trade these pickles that they could make cheaply on their own farm, and they would trade them for bread and butter because everyone was so poor during the Depression. Mm. So jungle pickles comes from that, and right now we're making about 80 liters a week, and we'll probably start selling them and putting them in jars pretty soon because they're so popular. But it's a really delicious. It's cucumber and onions, turmeric, a little bit of brown sugar, mustard seeds. They're great, and they really cut through all that beefy umami flavor from the uh, from the beef burgers and those pickles go on almost on every sandwich we serve uh, how about this he does pipel chuma aioli yeah pipel chuma is something that's like 5,000 years old it was born in Libya when there were still Jews there pipel chuma is actually Hebrew for essentially chili garlic mm. so it's this paste that we make and I brine our chicken with it it's made into an aioli which is kind of Libyan Jews going to France, and then there's everyone's still eating pilpal chuma. It's yeah. one of my favorite condiments. It's amazing. You can chop some in chicken soup, but here we're putting it on fried chicken, and we're doing it on our lamb burgers as well. Now our lamb is lamb shoulder that's that's ground and it's seasoned with uh, shawarma. Mm. So shawarma is amazing, and it's actually a traditional pairing with pilpal chuma. But I've also found on fried chicken with some really nice smoked streaky bacon Mm. it's some of the most amazing flavor combinations i've ever tasted and i put a kind of an american twist on it because i'm actually getting my chilies uh, from mexico these are ancho chilies i'm using in the pilpel chuma almost have like a a chocolatey bitterness to them and with the rest of the chili and the garlic in there it just comes to an amazing flavor i mean pilpel chuma it's so old and I think there's a lot of good stuff there. Like, that's why we try to use some, as many fermented foods as we can. Yeah. And as many old recipes as I can, like like pickles from the Depression, pilpal chuma from 5,000 years ago. These are all old techniques that we try to put a modern twist on with our own flair and our own new ideas. But you don't want to lose anything old. You can just adapt a new technique, a new flavor combinations. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything old is, is usually amazing. <laughs> you got such an affinity for these older recipes. Well, that's, that's the weird thing. Like with fermentation, 
that was born out of a need because we didn't have there was no refrigeration so people are learning how to preserve these foods mm. on a beach salting fish and over a fire and smoking it and like I'm like okay we just preserved our food for the whole winter there's like an important element there we lose those flavors when we just microwave something even like things that are just perfectly fresh okay what well, what if you put it in a salt brine and you put it on your shelf for two years what happens then mm. like our fermented garlic honey is garlic and chilies fermenting inside of honey and it takes about two weeks to make mm. and then we drizzle that on our fried chicken and it goes with that pil pal chuma sauce and like you can you can taste the time it takes to make these things in each bite and it's really delicious and exciting for me to like old world techniques but like a lot of their own modern twist and flavor on it they do monthly special burgers too yeah so basically every month we do a new seasonal burger last month uh, let's see we've gone through turkey venison pork we did something called a pig mac kind of throwing some shade at McDonald's with that one. <laughs> uh, last month, we did a chorizo spice pork smash burger, which came with a salsa on it that was made from rhubarb, asparagus, uh, both pickled, and uh, cilantro or coriander. But that was an interesting salsa because everyone looks at rhubarb as a fruit. They make pie out of it, of course, but it's yeah. a vegetable. And with salsa, everyone looks at a tomato as a vegetable, but it's a fruit. So I like switching those two things and making them dynamic on a chorizo spice piece of pork was amazing. This month, we're doing a, a white fish cake. So it's white fish made into a nice griddled cake. And that comes with wasabi aioli, black garlic furikake, which is a ancient condiment from uh, Japan. Oh yeah, some pickled fennel as well. So, I mean, basically every month we try to keep it as seasonal as possible. Like, whatever protein we can, we can source that month, that's what we're going to use. And whatever is going out of the ground at that particular day, we want to go grab it, we want to put it on a burger and try to make something delicious. So everything that we use here is from local suppliers, from the meat that comes from um, uh, butchers just by the station. We get ice cream from a farm in Biggleswold. And we have our donuts from a local baker, Prestige Donuts. You have the option as well, which is a secret but not so secret burger donut. So you can have your beef burger within a donut as well. Yeah. We will put anything between a donut. So yeah, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole range of possibilities here. But yeah, the one dessert we have is the donut ice cream burger. So that's combining the ice cream from a local farm with prestige donuts here in Cambridge to make this phenomenal sweet burger. Yeah. Was that Malloy's you were talking about earlier, the guys down by the station? Yeah, so yeah. Malloy's, uh, the guys that supply us our, our meat, we wanted nothing but the best quality. I'll say, yeah, he can tell you about how much meat he's got to grind me every week. He's <laughs> yeah. probably going to break his back carrying it in. <laughs> I think for the for the barbecue this week, we processed about 70 kilos of pork and chicken, oh, wow. and then smoking it for two days, and then cooking it overnight, and doing the whole American barbecue thing, which I love. It feels like I'm home with my family right now, sitting outside eating bratwurst and smoked pork and chicken. It's delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> He paints a good picture, doesn't he? I love people like that. I don't have to say anything. It's just his descriptions and his, his, his enthusiasm that sells the food. His name is Lex Falado, and he, apart from having the perfect Bond villain name, is the head chef of Gorilla and Lamb at the Cambridge Blue on Guida Street. And if you like a good burger on a sunny weekend, or any day, because they do serve every day, then you would do very well to check them out. Right, good. <laughs> OK, we're off for a two-minute break now. See you after the adverts. Cambridge 105 Radio.
Monday evenings on Cambridge 105 Radio. Strummers and Dreamers with Les Ray. As there are so many different kinds of folk songs out there. Traditional ballads, shanties, work songs, songs by singer-songwriters of all kinds, my particular thing. You'll get live sessions and interviews by local performers and those from further afield, the big names on the scene and newly emerging independent artists. Lots of new music, some classics and something special just for you. Strummers and Dreamers online whenever you want it and Monday at 7 on Cambridge. 105 Radio. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. So you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to Full Fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life And there's the music signalling the latest social media posts from the city. Yes, uh, Pint Shop have just, I think it was Instagram rather than Twitter, but anyway, they have today, Saturday, 32 lines of beer, which is pretty extraordinary. Wow, isn't it? <laughs> Very tempting to try all of them, but, you know. And Brewboard in Harston also today, Saturday, has live music and food from 4 o'clock until 10 tonight. And the Mill Road Butchers has said that next week it's extending its weekday opening hours, and that's from 8.30 until 6pm now. Weekdays, but of course this coming week they're not open on Monday, Tuesday to Friday next week. <laughs> Now, Cambridge Sustainable Food and its partners achieved the Sustainable Food Places Silver Award for Cambridge in 2021, making the city one of only six in the country to achieve it. And now the partnership is aiming for the Gold Award, and that's currently held by only Bristol and Brighton. This is important because, as Gavin Shelton, founder of CoFarm and chair of the partnership, said, more people are understanding that our current food systems are unsustainable and unethical. So I asked Sam Dyer, CEO and director of Cambridge Sustainable Food, about the award and the work involved in achieving it, what businesses can do and how members of the public can be involved. What makes this different than, than silver is that gold, you have to really hone in on two areas of excellence that, that anybody in the, the country can point to and say, actually, you know where they do that well? It's in Cambridge. And um, our partnership has chosen to, to work on those two areas of climate and biodiversity 
and also food justice, sort of switching up or, or changing the narrative around food poverty. So thinking about it not so much in terms of charity, but in terms of what, the, what people's rights are. What would businesses ideally behave like? We would want to see them sort of taking action in areas to do with climate bio and biodiversity, social responsibility, um, sourcing, those types of things. Uh, it doesn't have to be a food business, I guess, really. Indeed, no, you can be an organisation also and, and take action with your employees and raise awareness that way. Sustainability in catering businesses, for example, doesn't just stop at where you source your vegetables from, but actually it depends, you know, w- within your power, where you dispose of your, your surplus or your waste, it, it compo- comprises of the energy you use in your kitchen it comprises of even how your staff get to get to work so it's it's the whole you know the whole package um that we look at there is a lot of food waste isn't there restaurants don't want customers to come in and say i would like the this item on the menu and they say sorry we've sold out so they tend to order more than perhaps they need to be on the safe side is it easy to change that approach Unfortunately, I think at the moment within the system we are, then yes, you can be tighter on your ordering and more reactive to your your sourcing. But my experience, having worked <laughs> having worked in a, in a previous life in in the restaurant business, it is I think inevitable that there is always going to be some waste. But what we don't want to see is either overstocking, over ordering or indeed just scraping it into into landfill. Um, and, and I think those the, that's key. It's, it's sort of saying, well, yes, there will always be some surplus, but what are we going to do with that? You know, do we, do we reduce it and let it go a bit cheaper? Do we donate it? Do we give our staff, uh, you know, the, the food to take home with them? You know, what is it we do with that surplus? And so something like uh, Tristan Welch's Rubbish Cooks is an example of saving food from simply going into a fantastic Tristan, Tristan does some amazing stuff with some surplus food it goes above and beyond yeah I've seen him do some cracking stuff with yeah stuff that's come out of the kitchen even like spent barley from from brewing for example but what a, where does biodiversity come in into it okay if we're talking about restaurants and cafes I mean it's very much checking where you're sourcing your produce from and making sure that um, where you're sourcing your produce from is as locally sourced as possible but also those producers are using biodiverse methods such as agroecological methods to grow crops or they're encouraging wildlife and biodiversity so less use of insecticides sure the 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 idea of food justice as opposed to a sort of more um charity focused way of looking at it is that about empowering people and if so how do you get people to feel i as a member of the human race should be able to expect this sort of level of equality let's say sure i think you know that that type of work is 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 lengthy and and involved but i think if you took the example um of the food hubs as they they are working at the moment so there's about seven or eight seven food hubs across the city and they are an open access but many of them have volunteers from people that were accessing um food when they were uh, struggling so you know people have gone on to volunteer and gone on to be able to sort of offer the service to others in the community but actually what we're trying to do is build 
is to build into the system those dignity principles that you touch upon, but also a sense of communities being able to engage and participate in the food system at a very local level. So be that be that community foods, um, community meals or social supermarkets or growing projects where people can really get involved in growing, processing um, and supporting their own food needs. Yes, I mean, I know that one of the one of the ideas has been for people with allotments to donate their surplus. That's right. Yeah, yeah so we, we run a scheme called Grow a Row, um, which is basically, as you describe, which is uh, encouraging people to, to grow an extra row or an extra patch or an extra plant um, to be able to donate um, to through the food hubs. And that's something which, I suppose, let's use the word ordinary people, can do as opposed to organisations and businesses. Is there much else that ordinary people can do to help? Absolutely. So if you take a look on our our website, um, under the Going for Gold pages, you'll find a huge amount of um, things that you can do um, at home. We definitely recognise that it's not all on the individual. We definitely recognise that um, change needs to come from from above, on on a national or a global Um, policy scale but there are lots of things we can do also just in our own own homes and you can find loads and loads of ideas on the on the website right Um, and people should um, sign up for our newsletter check out the events that are up and coming we'll be running a climate festival um, in the autumn climate action and food we are working with the city council to um, develop a community kitchen um, and surplus distribution permanent um, centre um, so there's many many projects activities events um, that people can join in and that was sam dyer from cambridge sustainable food its website contains a lot of good information about their fantastic work and has details about how you can support them by donating or by volunteering there's also information about a number of events coming up at which you can find out more about the partnership's work. And we'll give you dates in a minute, but before we do, the partnership would welcome any support from academics in helping to assess the impact of the work being done. You can email cambridgefood.sonia at gmail.com. The events coming up soon include the Arbury Carnival on June the 11th from 12 till 6pm in Campkin Road and there you can learn more about the link between food and climate change and what you can do to make a difference. And that information will also be available at the Chesterton Festival from 12 till 4 on June the 18th at Pies Rec in Church Street. And there's two events on the 12th of June. From 10.30 till 12, there is a plant swap at Trumpington Allotments off Foster Road. Now, this is open to all. You don't have to swap. You can do a small cash contribution instead. And from 10 till 4, it's Hope Farms Open Farm Sunday, where you can learn more about wildlife-friendly farming. And that takes place at Grange Farm in Knapwell. And on June the 15th, there is the Sustainable Food Business Alliance from 1.30 to 4, at which you can find out about the alliance and how you can get involved. Details of how to apply are in the events section of the Cambridge Sustainable Food website. Right, Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, has been our guide to edibly sorting the weed from the chaff, that's a Matt joke, for several years now, and today he takes us on the final leg of one of his new wild food tours. Is this one more easy to find than wild garlic? When you find it, it's everywhere. 
I wonder if it's because there's something which smells like it. I need to check the leaf now at um, every pool playing fields, but it, there's something. And I thought it looked like chives. If it looks like chives, yeah. it will be Allium vignale, which is crow's garlic. And that's out everywhere at the moment. Yeah. So if you think you see chives oh, on the side yeah. of the road, have a pick of them. Down loads of the roadsides around Cambridge. It's a lovely one. Again, yeah, use it, it like chives or use it like this. Crow's garlic oh. or Allium vignale. And that's a wonderful one. We pick loads of that. It's one of Rowan's absolute favourite plants. He grows on the field next to where his childminders is in Caldecott. And he goes and picks grass first and sniffs it and goes, no. Oh, sweet. And then he goes up to this and then he picks it and goes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And he starts filling his little basket. Yeah, a lot of the alliums, this is a great time of year for them all at the moment. They're really coming out. And the main four we see around this area are the three corners, the fewer flowered, wild garlic and crow's garlic. Yeah. And they're pretty much everywhere. As I say, as long as you are careful, there really isn't much you can confuse them with. We'll have a look at a yeah. pack down there where they grow around the snowdrops. Yeah. It looks like a chive. Yeah. So the key identification feature is mm. these seven leaves, but the bottom two actually split out. So they start as one leaf, as you can see in this younger plant. Oh, yes. And then they split out and come down, and that top one splits out and comes open. So when you weed, you can then eat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's one of the nicest little wild herbs. Mm. I used mm. to get a lot of the gardeners bringing it into us in the pub and stuff because they'd mm. be pulling it out one sway. Exactly. So like, just put it in the side bag for me yeah. and then bring it because, yeah, mm. everyone hates it, but it's such mm. a wonderful plant. Well, it's, it's such an invasive plant. plant. Mm. I think the best way to think about foraging is eating the weeds. Yeah. Mm. Because yeah. a lot of the plants that we've forgotten to eat, yeah. there's a reason why they grow everywhere in our gardens because we used to cultivate and yeah. things like that. Mm. And we used yeah. to encourage them to grow there because that was our food. Even in yeah. Victorian times, they used to encourage dandelions in the yeah. grass and the lawns mm. because then it was dinner. Yeah. And now we swear about them and pour chemicals on them to try mm. and get rid of them. Yeah. And they're just dandelions are a wonderful plant. If we find a nice patch later, we'll have a talk about them. Are people shouldn't use chemicals. <laughs> people shouldn't know. Basically, in flavour wise, a cross between mint and sage. Ground ivy. Yeah. Okay. So it's much more classically looking, this one. Yeah. Oh, it's quite a funky smell, isn't it? Yeah, it's come <laughs> on somewhere between like mint and sage, I would say. It's the sage oh, notes I'm no, getting. That, that's yes. a really, really nice sharp vodka. Like mm. <laughs> a lot of bruising helps with, with the With a tiny bit mm. of, I don't know, some mm. pot vodka pomegranate. <laughs> that's what I want on ice. Nice. Oh, we've got one nice, nice little right. purple flowers here as well. Goes absolutely amazing in chocolate <coughs> brownies. Chocolate brownies? Chocolate brownies. Oh, okay. Chop it up, bruise it so it's up, got the blue put it in your brownie mix. Yeah. It is so gorgeous. It's another one of those kind of herbs that we should be using a lot more of rather than Ooh. buying herbs in packets again. Use it as it if it was a sage. Of, an amaranth. of a what? Amaranth, you know the little micro herbs. Oh, that yes, that yeah. just get terribly yeah. fussy about. <laughs> but these little flowers are lovely and acidic for a little snack. So they really burst Ooh, in your mouth. But the real magic comes from this them. plant is in autumn mm. when it berries. And the fruit from it is absolutely fruit. amazing. Good. Yeah, the magic is with the berries on this. And they're mm. called Oregon grapes. Ten times better than slows. They've got the same sort of dryness and much more rounded berry flavour. They make the best version of slow gin, in my opinion. They're not as big, are they? They're quite no, small. They're quite small and yeah. they grow in little clumps. And you mm. can do it even if... So this one's a Mahonia because it has the stem and the sharp holly-like leaves come out from it. Mm. Like that, whereas a berberis would go round it like that, like almost like a spiral with the leaves. Both of the berries are edible on them all, okay. and they're uh, really good used as like infusing in slow gin. And then if you take the berries out afterwards and make ice cream with them, oh wow! Then that's where it's at. <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that in life. You see it in little patches in the wild. It's normally like a garden escapee and stuff like that. But you yeah. quite often find this in your garden at home planted. 
but yeah, a lot no of the idea. like walks, pathways up into the woods and stuff where it's escaped out of people's gardens is a good place to look. But it's a good time to identify it now because it catches your eye. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. might not mm. notice that at the other times of year, but you come around the corner and you see bright yellow flowers. Right, right. I know mm. what that is now. And then you yeah. can mark yeah. that and remember that for later in the year. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's a really good example. Dinner or death? <laughs> because they grow quite close together. Both. But actually, it's a family that people are told to not do until they're much more advanced. But actually, it teaches you some really, really good attention to detail skills that you need to have a look at. So that's Anthriscus sylveticus, that's cow parsley. Here, Conium maculatum, poison hemlock. That one will shut down the muscles in your body from the feet up, basically. It's how... Uh, is it Socrates was killed by that? I think it was his chosen yeah. method of death oh, yes. and he documented it, so then we now know not what it does. But there's lots of key identification features. If we just look at the leaves, first of all, which is a really bad way to identify these two plants. Yeah. Excellent. But it's also a really good way. You can see the difference already. I think the best way I ever heard them described was Aztec for poison hemlock. The kind of the patterns and the way it goes, they're quite sharp, the pinate, the leaves. Slightly carroty looking. Yeah, well, they're part of that family. Yeah. Whereas the uh, cow parsley is much more rounded, less sharp, less aggressive. And they're a lot more big, spread, rather than really close and angry. But the best way to identify this plant is by these little dots on the stem at the bottom. So as you can see here, let me... So you've got this lovely rounded stem. You can see it's holy in the middle, so it's not solid. It's got these purple splotches. Any of the carrot family with purple splotches, it should be a real, be uh, careful no, no. this, yeah. let's have a look. The other thing is that it's completely and utterly hairless. So there is no hairs at all on that plant. That is another key identification feature. Third one, <laughs> and this has got slight grooves in them. These are called petioles, the stems that come away from the main stem. They're fairly round. There's not really a huge prominent groove in them or anything like that. And that's another good way. So what I'll do is I'll grab out the cow parsley. And they're literally growing side by side, aren't they? Yeah, this is a really good spot. You don't... (coughs) They're quite often a bit more separate than this. You don't Mm. often find them like this, so it's a really good opportunity to have a look at them both together. So what you can see with the cow parsley is it's a solid stem, first of all. It's hairy. There is no blotches on there. You've got the purple colouring, but if you look at the two of them together, you can see the immediate differences. If you look at the stem, it's got like a celery type groove that runs right down it. That's a very key identification feature for when you're, if people are sending me pictures thinking they've had this, I'm looking for that groove, I'm looking for signs of hairs, because that's the easiest way to rule this out. Absolutely no hairs, completely round, hairs, nice on groove. And then the petioles, you can see the difference here, that groove continues through the yeah. petioles into the plant so sometimes with nature as i say things aren't always how they seem this can be a bit more rounded and harder to see the petioles are the ones that they always seem to stay grooved in but it's just yeah not the same (laughs) no a lot of it is about going out and finding these poisonous ones and reassuring yourself that you can Mm. identify them before you can identify the ones Mm. that go in your pot once you're familiar with that plant that one is no longer scary Yeah. yeah now when you have to be careful is when it's first shooting up now I've picked that plant for over a decade. I'm very, very familiar with cow parsley. When it's first shooting up, I'm happy with it. But they can look even more similar when you haven't got these big stems with the purple blotches yeah. on yeah. and everything like that to really identify it. But it is a lot more ferny. But as you can see, when it's at this sort of stage, how would you tell me that that mm. isn't? Because yeah. it has got it's... the groove through the main bit yeah. and the petioles are very small. Yeah. So it's very hard to tell. So you are looking at the ferniness of it. You're looking at the smell. 
you're also looking at the fact that you can just see that tiny round hole in the end yeah. there. And no hairs. And no hairs, exactly. Mm. No hairs is the mm. real key one there. But the structure of the leaf itself is, I think, visibly I different. think it is, but, but you can never account for somebody else's attention yeah. to detail, so you're better True. off having four or five ways of method, mm. methods of identifying these plants when they're more dangerous. Mm. The carrot family really isn't one like the alliums, you're a bit more safe. Yeah. You still have to be careful, but you don't need as many identification features, yeah. whereas these you really want to have four things, really, that you're sure of, mm. just to make 100% sure. But really, yeah, you lie them next to each other, and as far as I'm aware, there is not a lot they can do if you eat a lot of that. <laughs> That's you, bye-bye. So it's something to be really said, careful dinner or death. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> but yeah, cow, cow parsley is wonderful. It's in flavour, slightly carroty, it's much more parsley. Yeah. So mm. just use it as parsley. It's not really, it's not exciting, mm. but it's really nice to make nice, fresh, green herb, cut grass flavours. That kind of thing works really, really well. Yeah, it's a herb that I love using, but we use it as more of a cooling effect if we're using it with wild garlic. So I think there's a recipe on our Facebook page for a wild garlic and cow parsley chimichurri. But the poison hemlock is the one to get to know first. If you smelt something and it smelt nice and sweet, you rubbed it on your lips and it didn't make you tingle and then you had a little taste of it, then it could be safe. Absolutely not. Hmm. The most dangerous, stupid thing in the world. And that hemlock water drop water plant is the key reason because it smells beautiful. It smells like fresh, sweet carrots and it's not safe to taste test but i imagine the taste is going to be similar obviously the hemlock there you get that mousy smell straight away that's already telling you no so there is no real rule across the board for anything in plants you have to get to know each individual family and then you can have rules in there wow that's a beautiful oh look at that swan that's absolutely gorgeous it come down the river oh yeah <laughs> and relax oh <laughs> Mallow. That's another one that gardeners absolutely hate. It is, it's another one gardeners hate. You never get it out. The name mallow, what other things that we eat do we know it from? It's marshmallows. Marshmallows, yeah. And the use for this plant really isn't in any of the leaves, the root. So the root is a really great way to make almost fake egg whites. So you can take the root and boil up in water and it has this kind of mucusy level that really uh, comes out and you can whip it up. So it would have been how they originally made marshmallows. And it's quite sugary as well, is that right? Yeah, it can be quite sweet. It's quite a starchy kind of A uh, particular time of the year? Roots and stuff tend to be when it's finished doing it, putting its effort into flowers and leaves. So, sort so of when the flowers autumn. die back, then try mm. and take the roots out. Okay. Dandelions are really versatile. You can cook them, you can eat them in salads, add them to stir fries and things like that. Anything that you put leafy greens into, really. I mean, my favourite part of the plant isn't actually the leaf, but it's a really wonderful one to use. It's the flower head. Mm. and our dandelion marmalade which I, I know, your daughter is a little bit obsessed lovely, with yes. <laughs> so it's a recipe that's I mean it, it took off hugely when we first did it and it was one of the ones that really got us a lot of followers so we make a marmalade with an apple base so basically we use apple juice we put some whole apples in there to bulk it a bit and we add sugar and we make it like a jam so bring it up to 105 degrees as we cool it we fill it full of petals of dandelion so we pick we pick all the petals out like this and just chuck it through as it's mm. cooling. You don't want to put it in when it's cold because then when you start to fold it and move it around, you can mess around with the sugars. You want it when it's kind of warm. If you put it in when it's hot, it destroys a bit of the flavour, but you don't want it to be lukewarm. You still want it to be hot to the touch, but not still boiling. So probably somewhere around the 80 degree mark. And then you add it in, it's, it, take, it then cooks them a little bit, it takes away that fluffiness, so you lose that fluffy texture, but you still keep the wonderful bitter flex. And it honestly is an amazing little uh, substitute for marmalade. Mm. 
Having come to the end of the amazing foraging tour with Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, how did you enjoy your first foraging tour? It's a nice first one for the public. We've done them for private events, so it's nice to get them out there for everyone and start to get people enthusiastic about wild food again. What an amazing selection to actually see all these different things at their different stages. There's some wonderful things to find, so coming back three times a year would give you a really good outlook of what we've got in the area. And some of the plants you can see, yeah, earlier in the spring in certain stages and then come back in the autumn and see them in seed and things like that. And we can get a really good idea of how these flavours develop. And it's just on the doorstep in Cambridge. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Steve. You know, I think my favourite line from Steve's tour was... uh, The best way to think about foraging is eating the weeds because weeds used to be cultivated and eaten in the past. That's why they're everywhere today. And that dandelion conserve sounded excellent too. Steve has just announced four wild food foraging sessions. So they're on the 5th, the 12th, the 19th and the 26th of June. So that's the next four Sundays, in other words. And you can book any of these sessions just by visiting the Foraging Chef website. And there's Green Onions signalling the start of our job section. Market House in Market Square, who we heard from earlier, needs back of house, front of house and admin staff. Uh, send a CV and covering letter via email to enquiry at markethouse.co.uk. Restaurant 22 in Chesterton Road needs a junior sous chef or senior chef de partie and front of house staff full-time or part-time. Email alex at restaurant22.co.uk. Vanderlyle and Mill Road is looking for front of house staff. Both full-time and part-time positions are available. This is a four or four and a half day week. Jack's Gelato needs scoopers. You need to be over 18. Drop your CV into the Bennett Street shop or email it to jack at jacksgelato.com. The Cambridge Cheese Company in All Saints Passage has full and part-time positions available. Both will include some Saturday work. The job includes helping customers choose cheese, restocking and taking payments. Email a CV and covering letter to cambridgecheese at gmail.com. Okay, a quick roundup of some other jobs now. With these, you can pop in at a quiet time or check the company's websites for details. So, chefs are needed at all levels at the Gonville Hotel in Gonville Place. A chef is needed at Hudson's Ale House in Trumpington Road. Uh, Also one needed at Sticks and Sushi in Wheeler Street and at Brown's in Trumpington Street. Sous chefs are needed at the Olive Grove in Regent Street, Pint Shop in Wheeler Street and the Mill in Mill Lane, and a junior sous chef at Coat in Bridge Street. A pizza chef is needed at Aromi in Bennett Street. And finally, a chef de partie is needed at the Ivy Brasserie in Trinity Street and also at Pembroke College in Pembroke Street. And that's about all the time we have for today. Now don't forget, we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And we will also be available via podcast early in the next week. Yeah, and can I just thank Fancits for Fancits in Mill Road for an excellent meal last night. You've eaten there soon. I have eaten there. They're great. They're really fun. Yeah. Uh, coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today is The Gadget Guide with Robin Lawrence. But that's all from us. Flavour will be back on the 18th of June, so until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.